you can open up to the short letter of Philemon this morning. And we will finish off Colossians and Philemon this morning. In 1941, a 20-year-old British man named Eric Lomax departed for Southeast Asia in World War II. Eric was enlisted in the British Army as part of the Royal Corps of Signals, which was a combat unit whose purpose was to set up field communications for the Allies. Very shortly after he arrived, he was captured as a prisoner of war, and he was forced to work as labor on a railroad that ran from Thailand to Burma, or what we now know as Myanmar, to aid the Japanese supply line. His experience as a POW of abuse and malnutrition, torture, horrid working conditions was some of the worst that a human could endure. After the war, unable to process what he had gone through, Eric became obsessed with two things, railroads and a hatred for his captors, especially one guard in particular, a man named Takashi Nagase. And this hatred aided him to the point where he was desperate for some form of closure. Now, we don't have time for the whole story, but through a series of interesting events, Eric and his wife found out the contact information of Takashi, and Eric's wife sent a letter. She wrote to him and said, How can you feel forgiven, Mr. Nagase, if this particular former Far Eastern prisoner of war has not yet forgiven you. In response to her letter, Nagase wrote back in broken English, the dagger of your letter thrusted me into my heart to the bottom. On March 26, 1993, the two men were finally able to meet. And there, Eric Lomax extended his hand and forgave his captor and tormentor. Takashi Nagase and Eric Lomax became friends. It was such an amazing story of reconciliation that a book, a movie, and a documentary were produced about it. Now, years ago, I was watching the movie, which, just heads up, was extremely difficult to watch, given that it depicts a lot of suffering and abuse. But in the movie, there is a scene in which the two meet, and the Lomax character forgives the Nagase character. As I watched that scene, I broke down into tears. I sobbed because I was hit with the reality of the forgiveness that I had been granted in Christ. For I am the one who committed great violence against the God who created me. And yet, through Christ's death in my place, in spite of my pervasive depravity, God reached out his arm of salvation and drew me close to him. He gave me the spirit of repentance as a gift. He showed me forgiveness, and he reconciled me to himself. And this, my friends, is the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I thought to myself as I watched this scene, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. If only the church could grasp this level of reconciliation and forgiveness. But then I started researching, and I realized that what was depicted in the movie was actually not realistic, for it was the benevolent forgiveness all mankind yearns for and is only found in Christ. You see, what I saw in the movie was not the full story. 
Unlike the movie, the main character's real life was not filled with reconciliation, but relational division. In real life, this man, Eric Lomax, left his first wife and children to pursue a much younger second woman who was actually the woman who wrote Nagase. His actions resulted in large amounts of relational brokenness, very much due to his unwillingness to get help and work through all the trauma that he had suffered in World War II. And beyond that, the true story is that much of his obsession and even his willingness to forgive Nagase came not from a place of pure, benevolent, and humble love, but from a desire to rid himself of the demons of the past. It came from a place of selfishness, not pure, selfless forgiveness. Now, please hear me. I am humbled and in awe that he could forgive his captor at all. I have no idea and never will what that would be like. And so from this standpoint, it truly is an amazing story. But here's my point. When you take away the dramatic license used to promote his story, the reconciliation can only go so far, and this is the case with most fictional or non-fictional movies that depict reconciliation. And usually that reconciliation is only done because of mutually agreeable parties involved. These two men were willing to reconcile because it would benefit them in relieving the torment that they had had for many years. When we see this, even though it is far better than what we often see in the world, it still pales in comparison to the story of reconciliation brought about by the selfless death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God's forgiveness of rebellious mankind because of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, it stands alone in perfect, benevolent mercy, grace, love, forgiveness, and reconciliation. There is no story like it. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel of the grace of God that we proclaim each Sunday is far different from any earthly reconciliatory agreement or action. The peace that most of our world pursues is a peace that only is the absence of conflict so that every individual might pursue their own happiness or prosperity, might pursue their own kingdom. But the peace that comes from God, the shalom that he is bringing about in eternity, can only come from him because it comes from the core of his being. For he alone will judge the living and the dead. But in his perfect holiness, he has also shown his mercy and grace, patience and steadfast love and covenant faithfulness by forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin of a specific people whom he has called to himself. And it is in displaying this same character of God that the local church fellowship is effective in proclaiming the truth of the gospel for only reconciliation that comes from the source of his gospel work will show what true, pure reconciliation is. And so the church is always to be pursuing this ideal of perfectly reflecting the gospel while also reckoning with our distance from that ideal in the moment so that we can continue building towards it. In this letter before us this morning, Philemon, we see Paul call Philemon, his friend, and really the whole local church of which he is a part, to this same ideal that will stretch them in their knowledge of the gospel and its application. And so last week, we looked at Philemon against the backdrop of Colossians. There, we talked a great deal about the foundational truth of the gospel for the Christian church and how our fellowship within the local church should flow out of that gospel. For it is in the local church that we act out a living parable of the gospel in the way in which we relate to one another. And this is why Jesus told the church 
that it is by our acting out of his commands of loving, effective fellowship that the world will know us as his people. He says this in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's what marks us. It's what identifies us. It's what shows us to the world as his true followers. And friends, this love is not the same that the world defines. It is not a surface level of nice, but rather a foundational covenant faithfulness shown in our fellowship. And then last week, we looked at the immediate context of Philemon. Philemon is a prominent member of the local church meeting at Colossae. In fact, it is most likely that the church met in his home or a state that was capable of housing a small congregation. And as an estate owner, like any other property owner in the Roman Empire at the time, he most likely employed bond servants, one of whom was a young man named Onesimus. We saw there that there are varying views of the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus at the time of Paul's writing. But regardless of the theory, what we know is that there is a relational brokenness between Philemon and Onesimus. It may have been for nefarious activity or simply because Philemon viewed Onesimus in the same way most Roman society did, as an object to own. Excuse me, to own. Either way, there was not a wholehearted love between the two. And as we will see, this was now an issue because in the time spent with Paul, Onesimus had professed Christ and became a converted Christian brother of both Paul and Philemon. And therefore, he had become a brother to all of the Christians fellowshipping there in the local church at Colossae. So Paul, as we will see, is not content with disunity among believers. In Paul's eyes, to profess a gospel of grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation, but not to live it out, is a black eye on the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul will appeal to Philemon, and really the whole church of Colossae, to accept Onesimus as a brother and be united in the faith. Then, in a sense, Paul will also ask his friend to free Onesimus from any owed dues so that he might become a missionary co-laborer to Paul. And so this church was dealing with the messiness of possible errant doctrine in its midst, midst, as we saw in Colossians, as well as a relational breach among two of its members. And so the letters of Colossians and Philemon are to be read amongst the Sunday gatherings so that the brothers and sisters who made up that local body of Colossae might hold one another to the ideal standard of reflecting the Lord in all that they do. So I want you for a moment to imagine Philemon sitting in his home amongst the other brothers and sisters who regard Onesimus simply as a bondservant amongst them, and then one of Paul's messengers, most likely Tychicus, stands up to read Colossians and most likely Philemon. And this is where we enter into our letter. Let's read now in the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And a hush fell over the room as everyone turned slowly and looked at Philemon. What will you do, beloved brother? How will you receive Onesimus? Last week, we saw in the introduction and closing salutations the background of reordered fellowship brought about by the gospel, as well as what we saw in verses 4 through 7, Paul's prayer that their fellowship would effectively display the gospel. And this week, we will see Paul not only pray, but fully model what he is asking as we look at Paul's practice of effective fellowship in Christ. Paul's practice of effective fellowship in Christ. For Paul knows that a gospel declaration without the effective koinonia or fellowship surrounding it will fall flat on its face. The message might as well not be preached. And this is the word that we found last week in verse 6, where it says the sharing of your faith. The word there in the Greek is koinonia, the the effective fellowship, uh, the, the fellowship of the faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ, that the effective fellowship might happen, that they might understand the gospel better. And so it is going to be imperative for Paul that the church at Colossae live out the gospel. And so what follows next in Paul's logic, starting in verse 8, is Paul's appeal for reconciliation based on the gospel. Paul's appeal for reconciliation based on the gospel. Are you with me so far? Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. Are you guys with me so far? Good. Okay. Paul's appeal for reconciliation based on the gospel. The central thread of this letter is that when we are in fellowship with one another within the local body, 
We are not just members of a common team or attendees to a given event. We are one in spirit. We are one in spirit. And this unity is not based on whether or not we feel like we are united. Let me say that again. This unity is not based on whether or not we feel like we are united. Friends, to feel and base your actions on your feelings of whether or not there is unity is the reason that the world divorces one another in a heartbeat. I've just fallen out of love with them. We don't let our feelings rule us. For any mob led by a charismatic leader can feel united for a time. This is the story of every cult, every cult that's ever existed. True unity in the church, though, is based on the fact that we already have been united by the blood-bought sacrifice of Christ. It is not a matter of feelings. And we're not hoping for that unity to manifest. It already exists naturally among those who are truly converted. So the reordering of relationships that comes from the gospel is a natural outgrowth of what the Holy Spirit has already done in justifying us in Christ. One commentator said it really well. No Christian has a right to refuse a welcome to one whom God has welcomed. Faith in Christ, the basis of justification, is the basis also of koinonia. Justification by faith must result in fellowship by faith. In other words, because we are joined to Christ, we are joined to one another as the church. And since each of us, I don't know about you, but I'm not omnipresent, are you? Since we're not omnipresent, we can't just exist in the cloud of the church. We must be joined to the church by our activity within one local expression of it, the church to which we belong. Therefore, how we treat the church to which we belong and how we act within it is how we treat the church as a whole. And this is what Paul is trying to get Philemon and Onesimus to display. But let's look first at Paul's description of what happened. And we can get this in verses 10 through 13. Take a look there again with me. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. It seems that Paul, here in the twilight years of his life, is imprisoned, most likely in Rome, and in that imprisonment, he had a young man with him named Onesimus. And this young man was a servant of Philemon. Uh, it was traditional at that time for an entire household to be baptized if the patriarch of the household was baptized, including their servants. And for them, they were supposed to participate in the church along with their patriarch. And this was not so much theologically correct as much as it was a cultural artifact of the patriarchal society of the day. And so, most likely, we can surmise that Onesimus had been baptized into the church at Colossae. And as we theorized earlier, he was sent with Paul as a gift in his imprisonment. But he was not an actual born-again believer. Converted at the heart level. He was a tear among wheat, if you will. And there's a hint at this in the Greek of verse 11. It's hard to catch in the English because Paul makes a pun out of the name Onesimus and the words useful and, and uh, useless. 
Now, you guys know that puns don't work in other languages. They're not as punny as they might be in English. You guys get it? Puns don't work in other languages, right? Because they use similar, uh, similar sounds, uh, but same meanings, and they, they work together within the English uh, language or the, the, the language of the person using them. And so Paul makes a pun out of the name Onesimus in the words useless and useful. The name Onesimus is like useful. It means profitable. It was a common name for slaves, and its synonym in the Greek is there in verse 11 as useful. Now again, puns don't work in other languages, but to badly rephrase Paul's pun, this is what he's saying. The slave you sent me, named Profitable, was formerly useless to you, and so you sent him with me, but now he is actually useful or profitable to you, right? Now, the reason he was profitable or useful is also included in this pun. And this is hard uh, to see in the, in the English, uh, but in the Greek, it makes a little bit of sense here. For Paul makes a double pun here because the word in the Greek for useful is eukrestos, which phonetically is very similar to enkrestos, which means in Christ. And so he is useful, Onesimus is useful or profitable, the meaning of his name, to both Paul and Philemon because now he is no longer just an earthly servant or slave. He has been born again to now be en Christos, eukrestos, useful in Christ. Now, Paul points out that Onesimus has been converted. For it is possible for someone to be in and among a local church, but not have conversion until the Lord grips their hearts and changes them from the inside out. For it is in sitting among the people of God that the Holy Spirit of God often converts people who for many years have thought they were Christian, but one day realize they have never actually sat under the Lordship of Christ. And so Onesimus had become a child in the faith to Paul, and Paul a father in the faith to Onesimus because Onesimus' heart had finally been converted and gripped by God. Because of this conversion, Paul wants to use Onesimus as a co-laborer in the gospel by sending him out. This is what he's talking about when he says useful and what he is alluding to in verse 21 when he says, confident of your obedience, Philemon, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say, not just reconcile, but also send him back so that he can be useful. And this is what Paul means when he says, uh, at the same time, or excuse me, knowing that you will do even more than I say. And he says that I might receive some benefit from you in the Lord in verse 20. Refresh my heart in Christ. What was his heart? His heart was, verse 12, Onesimus. Now, because of this conversion, he wants to send Onesimus out as a missionary. But Paul doesn't feel right doing so because Onesimus was sent as a servant to him, and therefore in that day, he was still the legal property of Philemon. So Paul is sending him back to Philemon so that Philemon might reconcile with him, not just as a returning slave, but as a brother in Christ, who was purchased off the slave block of sin by the same blood that rescued Philemon from sin, death, and hell. For it is to the gospel that Paul is pointing as his legal basis for the appeal which he is making. Now let's read that whole appeal again with verses 8 and 9 and 14 as well. Let's read it one more time just to get it right in our minds. Accordingly, though, he says, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required 
Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now again, in the Greek, you can almost hear Paul being a little bit playful here, a little bit sarcastic, uh, a little bit, um, hey, you know that I could tell you what to do, but I'm pretty sure you're going to obey anyway, so let me just appeal to you. He's being a little bit playful here and sarcastic. He says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul has the right to command Philemon to live out the gospel by reconciling with his new brother Onesimus. He could stand before the church at Colossae and say, Philemon, the gospel commands you to reconcile. He has this right because Christ has handed down his authority to his church. That authority comes through the apostolic doctrine put in place as taught by the elders within the local church. And the church discipline stated clearly throughout the New Testament, the Pauline epistles, the general epistles, the gospels, it establishes this truth. This is why Paul and Peter call those in the congregation to submit to one another and to the elders that lead the congregation. For in submitting to one another and the elders that lead us, We are all submitting to Christ, and we are, in fact, looking to Christ and his authority. In this biblical logic, Paul, therefore, could command Philemon. He would be well within his rights to do so. But notice that he doesn't. Notice the tact that he takes. For if he were to command, that would be how the world would operate. And the word is clear that we are not to lord over one another as the world does. Because the kingdom... The kingdom of Christ convinces not through brute force or debate. You wouldn't think that looking at most Christian posts on social media. But it convicts, it convinces through the spirit and the message of the gospel. For those who are truly in Christ will simply need to be reminded of the gospel and they will obey the commands of Christ. That is what Paul is referring to when he says he could command what is required For Christ required of us that if we accept his forgiveness, we must forgive those he has forgiven. If we accept his reconciliatory work on our behalf, we must therefore reconcile in his name. We have no other choice. But Paul does not force the issue. For again, that would be too much like the way the world operates. Instead, he calls upon the love provided by the gospel. He says, yet for love's sake. He calls upon the love of Christ in which Philemon has been converted. In essence, Paul reminds Philemon of the love of Christ and hopes that the Holy Spirit will take that reminder and bring conviction to Philemon so that Philemon acts out of the very gospel of grace that he has been given. Paul, being a wise shepherd, knows that action performed out of compulsion will never last. For change only comes from within, and only the Holy Spirit can make that change happen in actual conviction and conversion of the heart. This is why, friends, when you want conviction and conversion in your own life, when you want repentance, the number one thing to do is fall on your knees and beg the Lord to give you the gift of a change of heart. 
for he alone can give it to you. You cannot manifest it on your own. Paul is pointing to the fact that the work of the gospel in Onesimus and Philemon, if genuine, must be reflected in their fellowship and that of the church. And this is what he says next in verses 15 and 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. When Philemon and Onesimus last parted ways, regardless of the theory of circumstances around it, it was in the earthly dynamic of master and slave, of owner and property. Perhaps Onesimus was indeed a freedman, but in those days, you see, the most likely scenario for a bondservant that had been freed was actually to stay on as hired labor for that same master. We read slavery and we immediately put into context uh, the antebellum South and our history as the United States. This was a different context, a different culture. Yes, slavery was still not a good thing. It was a bad thing. But in that context... If a person was freed, they would usually stay on as hired labor for the same master. And so even if Philemon was more benevolent than most, there was a new paradigm of relationship that had now come into play. For Philemon now needed to recognize Onesimus not as a hired employee, but as a Christian brother. Paul was calling Philemon to reorder his relationships just as Paul had modeled in the opening and closing of the letter to view Onesimus now as a brother. Brothers and sisters, when you look at one another within this church, what do you see? Do you see in the flesh or do you see in the spirit? Do you see people who are only slightly more connected to you than the average acquaintance? Or do you see family with whom you have been bonded together by the force of the Holy Spirit and the love of the gospel? When brothers and sisters in this church go through difficulty, do you weep as if your own flesh and blood was going through it? When they have great victory, do you cry out in praise and thanksgiving to God on their behalf? Friends, these are not things that come naturally or easily. They are actions of fellowship that come supernaturally by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And it is reinforced as we take action that is based upon this kind of fellowship, as we pray for one another, as we align in the Spirit together, as we speak truth out of God's Word to one another, as we benevolently give so that we can take care of one another, as we serve each other. For these things cannot happen in a church that is based on consumerism, where I can come and go as I please. This is based upon effective koinonia, effective fellowship, brought about only by the Spirit of God. For this kind of unity to occur, the hearts of Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon must all be knit together in a love that can only come from Christ. Notice that the word heart is used three times in this short letter. In verse 7, it seems as though Philemon is known for refreshing the hearts of the saints. Potentially, even Onesimus tells this to Paul. And if, in verse 12, Onesimus is then identified as Paul's very heart, then, in verse 20, Paul will bring the two together and will call on Philemon to refresh his heart by reconciling with Onesimus and sending him back to him. To do so, Paul is asking Philemon at the core 
to lay aside his rights in relationship with Onesimus. This is so important, friends. Paul is asking Philemon to lay aside his rights in his relationship with Onesimus. Friends, do you realize that this is always what's at the core of conflict? Two parties fighting for their rights. Two parties who each believe they are the victim. And in our culture, this idea has gotten to a level of the obscene. In our day, everyone is a lord unto themselves and a sovereign citizen that has innumerable rights over others. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. To Onesimus, in his culture and day, he had the right to hold Onesimus as property. It would have won out in court and get every ounce of labor out of him that was owed him because he had purchased him. For Philemon to recognize Onesimus as a brother in Christ and to set him free to be a missionary with Paul would be to lay down his rights in submission to the good news that Christ has done the same to save him. For the gospel that these men proclaim and supposedly share with Paul is the gospel of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If the Savior, Philemon confessed, had given up his rights to such a degree that he could reconcile his saints to the Father, then how could Philemon claim his relational rights in defense of a callous heart? The short answer is, if the Spirit had truly converted his heart, he could not. And he would realize that any rights he was losing in giving up his servant to the work of Paul and the gospel would be paid back infinitely more by having Onesimus as a brother in Christ for eternity. Brothers and sisters, at the core of every conflict is a selfishness that demands our rights and our feelings be seen as sovereign over the other person. This is the core of conflict in the church. This is the core of conflict in your marriage, where you demand your rights as sovereign over your spouse. This is the core of conflict between parents and children. This is the core of conflict in work and in every place. And often what we are demanding is that our hurt, our emotions, be regarded as sovereign over the other person's feelings and emotions. Where, dear friends, is this the case for you? Where are you refusing Christ's call to reconciliation because your feelings have become sovereign? Perhaps it is because you believe your emotions and experience is sovereign over all those around you in whom the Spirit of God also dwells. If that be the case, then it is time to ask God for a gift of humility, the gift of giving up your supposed rights in your relationship so that he might instead show his glory through us as we lay our lives down for one another as he did for us. Friends, this is the key to a successful marriage. This is the key to a unified church. 
This is the key to a world restored in shalom. People living out the gospel that they proclaim to have accepted. And perhaps, maybe, just maybe, Christ will resurrect a reconciliation from that sacrifice that will give glory to the Father in ways that you could never have imagined. We have become far too comfortable in Christendom with shallow versions of niceness and tolerance as if they are gospel-produced reconciliation and unity. And this is exactly what Paul was eager to avoid. If all that Paul was asking was for Philemon to release Onesimus into Paul's care, then Onesimus could have stayed and a shallow reconciliation in Christ could have sufficed, could have been pretended. But Paul is sending Onesimus back so something greater might occur. Paul is asking that both men move past whatever division they had prior so that the fullness of relationship and friendship could be genuinely founded as evidence of their effective fellowship in the gospel. One commentator puts it this way, to exchange greetings and keep up appearances for a few days and then part once more would not be real reconciliation, end quote. Paul wanted them to fully reconcile in Christ and if Onesimus were then to depart back to Paul for the work of the gospel, that would be worthy of the gospel. But notice that Paul does not lead in a do-as-I-say-but-not-as-I-do fashion, for he is leading instead by example. And that is what we see next. Paul's mediation of reconciliation based on the gospel. Paul's mediation of reconciliation based on the gospel. The first example Paul provides is in something we may have already brushed past, for he too is setting aside his rights. Paul has asked Philemon to set aside his rights as a Roman citizen and owner of Onesimus. And it's innate to the letter that he's asked Onesimus to set aside his right to demand freedom as a Christian, in whom there is no status or difference between a slave master and a slave. So Paul, we see in verse 8, is then also setting aside his right as a father in the faith to both men to demand or command that reconciliation take place. He is leading by example in set setting aside his rights as well. But then let's also notice Paul's example as a Christ figure in this relational conflict. Let's reread verses 17 through 22. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. This is partner in the gospel. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Here we see... Paul's work as a mediator and reflection of the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the gospel as well, is it not? That Christ is the one who mediate, mediated the conflict between a rebellious humanity and a holy God. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for example, says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The Old Testament imagery shows the Messiah as one who is an agent of the Lord working on behalf of Yahweh to bring redemption. 
He is called the arm of the Lord that works salvation. And Jesus currently acts right now as the intermediary between us and the Father in what is called an intercessory role as high priest, where he allows us by his blood to enter into the presence of the Father. And so in verse 17, Paul is asking Philemon to view him in the role of mediator. And in verse 18, to even take on the role of sacrificially atoning mediator. This is what we are to be within the church when conflict between brothers and sisters occurs. We are to do the same thing Paul did. Our job is to be ministers of the gospel and not ministers of nice that looks the other way when division is present. The word is clear that we have been sent to be ministers of reconciliation. We read it earlier, but let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 5. Go back with me to it. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. Give me an amen when you get there. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Oh boy, does that challenge or convict any of us in the room today? That we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ and Christos, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, everybody read this out loud, the ministry of reconciliation. Say it again the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, read this with me, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, we are sent into this world and within the church to be ministers of reconciliation. We do this first and foremost by verbally proclaiming the gospel so that the lost might hear, be converted, believe, and be reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ. But our message is only as good as the life we live behind it. And so we are likewise sent to one another to be ministers of reconciliation in the midst of the church. This is in part what Christ meant when he said this in John 20. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He has sent us to be ministers of reconciliation. It says, be ambassadors on his behalf in the power of the mediation of Christ. Our declaration of this truth with our mouths is only as good as our reflection of this truth with our actions. Brothers and sisters who are married in this room, please hear me. The conflict in your marriage that you are unwilling to deal with and put to death is a black eye on the gospel you proclaim. Put the conflict to death in the name of Jesus Christ. Do whatever it takes, for the glory of God is at stake. Individuals in the room, any conflict that you have within the body that you are scared to deal with, deal with it. Because it is a black eye on the gospel of Jesus Christ that you proclaim. For the sake of Jesus Christ, for love's sake, put it to death. 
And don't just sit in a fake tolerance pretending to be nice with one another. Instead, put it to death so that unity can reign. Friends, do you hear me for love's sake? Do you hear me for Christ's sake? Put it to death. So this is our job, dear brothers and sisters, to be like Paul when conflict exists among the body and among our marriages. We are to lovingly yet firmly point to the gospel by which we have all been reconciled in peace to Christ. And then we are to lovingly call one another to make a choice. And then we are to pray for one another that the gospel that we believe has converted our hearts would truly work out in effective fellowship. And friends, please hear me. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I am a challenger. If you haven't figured that out, stay at the church a little bit longer. You'll figure that out, right? You don't have to challenge like I do. You can challenge like Paul does. In fact, that's the preferred method. That's what I'm working to attain and be like, is to go and say, brother, sister, what does the gospel require of us? Let's move forward in that. That is how we call one another, exhort one another to walk in the ways of effective fellowship. And so dear brothers and sisters, recognize that you can lovingly exhort with the same grace and mercy and love that Paul shows in this letter to Philemon. And you can have confidence that if the gospel has truly grasped the hearts of those for whom you're acting as mediator, there will be an outcome that shines forth the glory of God like no other. One commentator summarizes what Paul is doing so well when he says this, quote, Paul is not asking for a paternalistic willingness to let bygones be bygones, nor is he offering good advice to Philemon on how to maintain a dignified detachment untroubled by passion or anger. He seeks the specifically Christian virtue of loving forgiveness, which will demand humility from both parties. And the thing which will induce both parties to do this is a theological fact, namely the fellowship which belongs to the people of Christ. There will always be forces that try to tear the church apart, but there will always be the gospel, gospel itself to point the way of humility, forgiveness, and reconciliation, by which unity can be not only precariously preserved, but solidly established. Amen and amen. amen. Paul lays aside his rights, acts as a mediator as did Christ, but then also examples what it is to be the very atoning sacrifice that brings forgiveness and reconciliation. Let's reread back in Philemon again. Go back there with me. Reread verses 18 through 20. Verses 18 through 20. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Like his Lord who owed nothing yet took on the debt that we owed to God, Paul is willing to repay an earthly debt. But in doing so, he is hinting at the fact that Christ has already paid any debt that Onesimus might owe to Philemon. Friends, when mediating, we act as the messenger of this reminder. For how can two fully converted individuals continue to claim they are owed anything when Christ has paid the price that they owed to God the Father? This is what Christ was saying in the parable of the unforgiving servant. In Matthew 18, 21 through 35, you can read it on your own. 
he paints a picture of one who is forgiven much, but then goes and requires much of everyone around him. Friends, if you have received the grace and forgiveness of Christ, then you can do no other than give that same grace and forgiveness to one another in Christ's name. You might be asking, Hans, how can I lay down my rights? How can I look at this other person who I'm in conflict with, and how can I forgive them? When you look at them, picture the cross. The cross that paid for every sin you and them have ever done. Picture the cross. And picture the resurrection of Christ that gave us victory over all the wrong that we have done. And allow that to seep into the relationship. Allow that to lord in the relationship. Now, it is church tradition and history that this is what did indeed occur between Philemon and Onesimus. You even see Paul's confidence in it happening in verse 21. And you even see Paul inviting himself to come and stay with Philemon, knowing that their friendship would still be intact in verse 22. And it is their reconciliation in Philemon that becomes a living parable of the gospel in action among the effective fellowship of God's people. Now, friends, this is not an easy thing to do. And please, please hear me that I do not stand up here as one who claims that I have conquered this and I know how to do this so well. You can ask anyone who is in friendship or marriage with me, and they will tell you that I am still working on this just like every one of you. Laying aside our emotions and our treasured rights of self-preservation so that we might seek heartfelt reconciliation and forgiveness is one of the most difficult tasks given to humankind. It is so difficult and beyond our own strength that it requires the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For when we understand the violent, savage rebellion that our hearts produce towards God, and then we understand the gracious love that God displayed towards us, it should bring us on our knees in humble thanksgiving and praise. For when humanity has turned, had turned its back in hatred on the very creator that gave us life, provision, and love, God demonstrated his love for us in sending his son as a mediator. He became the atoning sacrifice on the cross that paid for our sin so that God might ransom a people out of the kingdom of darkness to make us his beloved children. We have been given this miraculous gift of reconciliation with our very creator so that we might go forth and declare it to the world around us in thanksgiving and praise for what he's done for us. It is this understanding of grace that has shaped all of Paul's activity and message in this short letter to Philemon. For he knows that an effective fellowship is one in which the only answer for the unity amongst the church is the Holy Spirit calling it to live out the truth of the gospel. A church that displays this truth, Mission Fellowship, is a church that displays the very power of God. And though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do so, to do what is required, I, like Paul, appeal to you out of love's sake, for the sake of the gospel. Let's be a church that does so for the sake of the gospel. So let's finish with some practical application that we can take away from Paul's letter to Philemon in the context of Colossians. And this will be short and sweet. First, the people of God are a people whose highest priority is not the self, nor even the church organization to which they belong but it is the gospel and the glory of God displayed in their fellowship. And so if we have any open conflict, we need to be willing to give up our rights, to pursue reconciliation, 
and call the other party to do the same for love's sake. If you need help with that, if you need mediation, please ask someone else in the body to help as that mediator, and we as your elders would love to do that for you as well. I've had the honor and blessing of watching the gospel uh, take place in the midst of many mediations in this church. And I'm thankful whenever that occurs because it shows the gospel in such a huge way. And so if you are, con- if you are uh, currently in the midst of conflict, do your best to reconcile and lay down your own rights so that Christ might be glorified. And second, if you find yourself as a mediator in conflict with parties in the church, whether that be brothers and sisters in Christ or married couples who are also in Christ together, here's what you do. And you all have the ability to do this because you're all believers. You lovingly point both parties to Christ and to his gospel. And you do so even with your own participation in their midst, as Paul did. Ask them the question, what does your Lord and his gospel require of you in this situation? And friends, for the gospel to reign in our lives and in this church, we must ask of one another that feelings and emotions be submitted to Christ, not the other way around. And third, if one of the parties is unwilling to pursue reconciliation, you don't freak out, you don't turn it into drama, you don't accuse, you don't fight. You simply leave it in the hands of the Lord. You pray for them, and as you relate to them, you continue to call them to reconciliation. Don't pretend that everything is okay because it's not. To do so would be unloving to them. Go read the parable of the unforgiving servant, and you'll see why it's unloving to them to let, that, let it sit and pretend as if everything is okay. To do so would be a black eye on the power of the gospel that we all proclaim. But recognize that force will not work. And if it does work, it will only work for a short time because only hearts converted by the gospel of grace will commit to reconciliation that displays the gospel of Jesus. Mission Fellowship, do we want to be a church that displays the glory of God through the way in which we fellowship? Do we want to be a church that displays the gospel in how we reconcile? These are the questions that we are faced with this morning as we close Philemon and Colossians. And I would suggest that we can be, and we actively are trying to be, a church that commits to that kind of effective fellowship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your gospel. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you, Jesus, died for us in our place to reconcile us to the Father. And you did so by laying down your own rights and drawing us to yourself through the victory of your resurrection. And now as you sit enthroned, Jesus, we pray that you would pour out your spirit into our hearts and you would call us to a fellowship that is not just effective in the the ideas of success of the world, but is effective in displaying the gospel in such a way that the world around us will only be able to claim that it comes from you. Lord, this kind of reconciliation that was displayed in Philemon, or at least being appealed for, is what we request from you that you would bring amongst us and bring amongst your true church. But we realize that to do so, Lord, will have to be an act of your spirit brought about by the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, as humble servants, knowing that we have nothing to give you, we pray, Lord, that you would give us this gift, this gift of humility and repentance and confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. Let us, this small church here in Salem, Oregon, be a beacon of that message and that truth of reconciliation for which you have sent us as ambassadors. And Lord, we 
pray this as we uh, step into our act to display the truth of what you've done in reconciling us, as we step into the table of communion, and then further as we step into an agape meal, agape meaning love, a love feast that declares our unity in you and our fellowship with one another. Help us, Lord, at the heart level to be a church that is converted to rejoice in this effective fellowship that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.